Hello, welcome to Infinite Cast uh, Podcast. Yes. We were just lamenting that we probably won't make it to Serbia this year. I mean, how bad how bad could it be? Well, I guess we're saying that, you know, maybe we shouldn't get too close to Ukraine. I, I'm sure yeah. people would quit because we were the background here is that uh, we are planning on getting uh, having our wedding on the second anniversary of our marriage uh, coming in June. Um, and, you know, what comes after the wedding? It's the after party. And after the party, of course, the hotel lobby. Yes. And then around about four, you got to clear the lobby. Yeah. Go back to the room and then go on a honeymoon. <laughs> To lovely European capitals, yeah. And Molly wanted to do all the uh, all the the um, the top hits: Madrid, Paris, Rome. Amsterdam, Rome, Berlin, Berlin, and Belgrade. I want to go to Serbia. A vlog. I've, there's a vlogger I like, and she married a Serbian guy, uh, a a Canadian expat Serbian, and they went to Serbia and did a. She did a travel vlog, and it looked fun. It looks exactly the style of travel I like, where you just drink beer and eat food and walk around and look at things. Yeah, that's it. Does sound great. I mean, yes, I would also and it's like Serbia. To, I would also like to go to Serbia, but I don't know. We were like, uh, is that too close? I don't know. Is it too close to an active war zone? It, but that feels unfair to the, the Serbs. I don't know. If you are an infinite If you're ca- Serbian. If you're an infinite castle li- listener uh, who is currently in Serbia, um, please uh, please email us and tell us, should we go to Serbia? Yes or no? Tell us how the Balkans are yeah. these days. <laughs> well, just, you know, Croatia really blew up as it a... Uh, vacation spot. You gotta go see all the gambo locations. You gotta see all the gambos, and I feel like you know the real heads are like, well, yeah, you like Croatia, but what about Serbia? Yes, but I won't be doing any travel fluencing. I feel like that is a a, a nasty business overall. <laughs> okay, well, we will not vlog from Serbia if we come to your country. I but won't yes. vlog. Uh, if you are Serbian, please get in touch and tell us whether or not we should come visit you. Yeah, and what we should do there when we do. Yeah, Serbia's hottest club is. I would like to go the, to Serbia's hottest club. Fill in the blank. Also, yeah, I'm sorry. Like, uh, let's be real. Like, a lot of the dance music I like is, you know, basically just bastardized Euro dance. Why yes, not go course. straight to the source? And then, of course, we could perhaps find and befriend the Djokovic. Uh, I don't. I don't think he wants to be friends with us. Remember, I believe this is. Is this not the guy who is anti-vax oh, and yes, believes like, in telekinesis? Oh yeah, who who like compromised his career to a permanent extent because he won't take the vax. He doesn't want to see us. I don't really want to see him. It's well, fine. it would be fun to see him. Sure. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, let's get started. Well, luckily, I think we're back at the Tennis Academy. Excellent. 11th November, year of the dependent adult undergarment. Apparently, some higher up had sent Mary Esther Thode out on her little yellow Vespa with the order for their match. She'd pulled up alongside Stice and Wayne just as they cleared the Hammond golf course, Hal a good half kilometer behind them with Galumfer's Cornspan and Con. Shtit was inscrutable about the whole thing. The match wasn't like a ladder challenge. Stice and Hal were in different age divisions this year. The match was more like maybe an exhibition, and by the second set, as people got done with the weight room and showers, it was attended like one, the match. Helen Steeply, of moment, possessed of a certain thuggish allure, but hardly the pericardium piercer that Oren had made her sound like to Hal, sat through the whole thing, accompanied for the first set by Aubrey DeLint before Thierry Poutrincourt stole his spot on the bleacher. It was the first high-caliber junior, junior tennis she'd ever seen, she said, the massive journalist. They played on number six, the best of the East show courts, also the scene of some of the recent Eschaton's worst carnage. It was a conditioning-heavy day, a very light schedule of matches. 
Bags of smoke burped steadily up from Stitt's crow's nest high overhead, and sometimes you could hear the weatherman's pointer tapping absently on the transom's iron. The only other thing nearby was down on number 10, a challenge in girls' 14s, two baseliners sending parab- parabolas back and forth. Ponytails, an air of baseline attrition, the ball's high, heavy arc, that of a loogie spat for distance. Shaw and Axford were also way out on number 23, warming up. No one paid them? Oh, oh no. God. Oh, God. Well, oh, you, you want me to vamp? Yeah. Or, no, I'll we'll pause. Sorry, if that didn't pick up uh, our <laughs> mail. Uh, <laughs> mail The doorbell rang indicating mail was down there, so I had to go. And if you've been listening this far, you know that uh, we have a buzzer that doesn't work, so yes. we have to go down to greet the mail. Yes, we have to, we have to receive the mail. Bring it's the very mail cool. Into, a, into our lives and into our house. It's very convenient. Uh, we love it. It's yes. good. Uh, yeah. All right. Back in. Shaw and Axford were also way out of number 23, warming up. No one paid them or the 14s much mind. The bleachers behind the show court filled steadily up. Stitt had Mario film the whole first set from above, leaning way out over the transom's railing, with Watson braced and gripping his vest from behind, Mario's police lock protruding and casting a weird needly shadow slanted northeast of Court 9's net. This is the first real match I've seen after hearing so much about the junior tour, Helen steeply told DeLint, trying to cross her legs on a cramped bleacher a few tears from the top. Aubrey DeLint's smile was notoriously bad, his face seeming to break into crescents and shards, wholly without cheer. It was almost more like a grimace. Orders that DeLint kept keep the mammoth soft profiler in direct sight at all times were explicit and emphatic. Helen steeply had a notebook. And DeLint was <clears throat> filling in both players' names on performance charts shit won't ever let anyone look at. The PM was moving fast from a chilly noon cloud cover into blue autumn glory, but in the first set it was still very cold, the sun still pale and seeming to flutter as if poorly wired. Hal and Stice didn't have to stretch and barely warmed up at all after the run. They'd changed clothes and were both expressionless. Stice was in all black. Hal in ETA sweats, with his left shoe's upper bulging distended around his air stirrup brace. A born netman, Orthostice played with a kind of rigid, liquid grace, like a panther in a back brace. <laughs> Was when we when we last checked in with the boys, uh, this is this seems to be pulling back in time. So this is before the dinner. Before the dinner, when so I, the, I think we already know that Hal loses to Stice. Hal loses, and but, it's puts up a, but puts up a good. Actually, wait, no, Hal almost loses. Uh, and Stice is, is reminiscing at the dinner about how fate seemed to be smiling on him. Yes. Okay, sorry, I, I forgot. Hal almost loses uh, to him and then comes out at the end. And the reason he wins is because he doesn't think Stice really believed that he could beat him. Yes. Okay, great. So he, got mi- is, he got mind freaked. <laughs> this is the thing that happened. This is the, this is that match from be- from the dinner. Okay, yes, sir. Great. A, pan- a panther in a back brace. Rigid grace. Uh, he was shorter than Hal, but better built and with quicker feet. A southpaw with factory painted W's on his Wilson Pro Staff's 5.8 SI's size. Uh, Hal was left-handed too, which complicated strategy and percentages hideously, DeLint told the journalist beside him. The darkness's service motion was in the McEnroe-Esconha tradition. Legs splayed, feet parallel, a figure off an Egyptian frieze, sighed so severely to the net he's almost facing away. Both arms out straight and stiff on the serve's downswing. Hal bobbed on his feet's balls a little in the ad court, waiting. 
Stice started his surface motion motion in little segments. It looks a little like a bad animation. Then grimaced, tossed, pivoted netward, and served it with a hard, flat spang away out to Hal's forehand, pulling Hal wide. The finish of Stice's pivot lets his momentum carry him naturally up to net following the serve. Hal lunged for the serve and chipped a little forehand return down the line and scrambled right to get back uh, into court. The return was lucky, a feeble chip that just cleared the net's tape, so shallow that Stice had to half-volley it at the service line, still moving in, his backhand two-handed and clumsy for half-volleys. He had to sort of scoop it and hit it up soft so it wouldn't float out deep. Is this the first time that we've actually had, like, a beat-by-beat of a competitive tennis match described to us in this book? You know, they they led up to the... um, the Long Island tournament where uh, Pemulus puked and I think they were talking about warm-ups and then they did, they talked about the drills that you do during drills at ETA. This might actually be one of the first times. And we times. saw the tragedy of himself busting his knees. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't even, that. even that was just a long uh, labored description of, of that. Yeah, this might be the first accident. play-by-play, yeah. which is also hilarious. Yeah. Axiom, the man who has to hit up from the net is going to get past. And Stice's half volley landed in the ad court, squishy and slow, and sat up for Hal, who was waiting for it. Hal's stick was back for the forehand. I'm literally, honestly, as I'm, as I'm reading, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm, ro- I'm rotating a tennis player in my mind. I'm swinging my arms. Yeah. But it's hard when you're also uh, holding, holding a, a microphone. microphone. Yeah. Uh, you right. wouldn't be able to hear me if I use the microphone like a tennis racket. Back for the forehand, waiting, and there was a moment of total mentation as the ball hung there. Statistically, Hal was booked to pass a left-handed volleyer cross-court off a ball this ripe, though he also always loved a good humiliating topspin lob, and Stice's fractional chance at saving the point was to guess what Hal would do. Stice couldn't crowd the net because Hal would put it up over him. He stayed a couple stick lengths off the net, leaning for a cross. Everything seemed to hang distended in air now so clear it seemed washed after the clouds. The bleachers' people could feel how feel Stice letting the point go inside, figuring it lost, knowing he could only guess and stab, hoping. Little hope of Hal fucking up. Hal Hingandenza does not fuck up passes off floater half volleys. Hal's forehand's windup was nicely disguised, prepped for either lob or pass. When he hit it so hard, his forearm's musculature stood starkly out. It was a pass, but not cross-court. He went inside-out on it, a flat forehand as hard as he could from the baseline center back towards Stice's due sideline. Stice had finally guessed lob at the start of the stroke and had half-turned to sprint back for where it would land, and the inside-out pass wrong-footed him. He could do no more than stand there, flat-footed and watching, as the fresh ball landed a meter fair to get Hal back to deuce in the fifth game. There was applause off 30 hands for the point as a whole, which was faultless, and on Hal's part, imaginative, anti-book. One of very few total inspired points from Incandenza, Delint's chart would show. Neither player's face moved as a couple people shouted for Hal. The basic 10-level RASU, takes us to endnote um, 265, reinforced aluminum spectation unit. Back to the text. From the Universal Bleacher Co. sat right behind the court. At the start, it was mostly staff and the A's who were running alongside when Thode brought Stice and Hal the directive to play. But the stands gradually filled as word got down to the locker rooms that the darkness was playing 18's A2 dead even in the first set of something shit had actually dispatched a scooter to order. The bleachers' ETAs hunched forward 
with hands warmed in the crease between hamstrings and calves, or else gloved and layered and stretched out with their heads and bottoms and heels on three different levels, watching both sky and play. The lozenges of shadow from the court's mesh fences elongated as the sun wheeled southwest to west. My man loves a shadow. Yes. It's like the only structure that you even get. Otherwise, it's like, what is even going on? <laughs> it's like, okay, this, it's 4 p.m. or whatever. Several sets of legs and sneakers hung swinging from the transom above. Mario allowed himself several reaction shots from staff and partisans in the bleachers. Uh, Aubrey Delint spent the set with a punter's cathected profiler who allegedly came to see Hal only about Orin, but whom Charles Tavis won't let see Hal yet, even chaperoned. Tavis's reasons for the reticence too detailed for Helen Steeply to understand, probably, but she was watching from the show bleachers' top row, poised over a notebook, wearing a fuchsia ski cap with a rooster comb top instead of a pom-pom top, blowing into her fist, her weight making the bleacher below her bow and inclining Delint oddly toward her. For the spectators not perched on the transom overhead, the players looked waffle-cut by the chain-link fencing. The green windscreens that wrecked spectation were used only in the spring in the weeks right after the lungs' disassembly. DeLint hadn't stopped talking into the big lady's ear. All the ETA players loved the show courts 6 through 9 because they loved to be watched, and also hated the show courts because the transom's crow's nested shadow covered the north halves of the courts around noon and all through the p.m. wheeled around gradually east like some giant hooded shadowed moving presence brooding. Sometimes just the sight of Stitt's little head shadow can make a younger kid on the show courts clutch and freeze. By Hal and Stice's seventh game, the sky was cloudless and the transom's monolithic shadow, black as ink, gave everyone watching the fantods as it elongated along the nets, completely obscuring Stice when he followed a serve in. Another advantage of the lung was that it afforded no overhead view, which was one more reason why staff waited as long as possible before its erection. There was no indication Hal even saw it, the shadow, hunched and waiting for Stice. <laughs> the darkness splayed out stiff on the deuce side of the center line, ratcheting slowly into his service motion. He overhit the first serve long, and Hal angled it softly off court, moving two steps in for the second ball. Stice hit his second serve as hard as he could again and netted it and pursed his thick lips a little as he walked into the net shadow to retrieve the ball, and Hal jogged over to the fence behind the next court to get the ball he'd angled over. DeLint was putting a pejorative hieroglyphic in a box on his chart marked Stice. <laughs> pejorative hieroglyphic. At just this moment, at 1,200 meters east, God, sorry, just like your coach logging it so that then you get chewed out afterwards and you're like, your th third serve in the seventh game, you t totally ate shit. What the fuck was that about, Stice? And you're, and you're like, I just, every serve blends into each other. And you're I like, I served a ball 80 times. What do you want me to do? At just this moment, at 1,200 meters east and downhill and one level below ground, Ennett House live-in staff Don Gately lay deeply asleep in his Lone Ranger-ish Ranger sleeping mask, his snores rattling the de-insulated pipes along his little room's ceiling. Four odd clicks to, to the northwest in the men's room of the Armenian Foundation Library, right near the onion-domed Watertown Arsenal, Poor Tony Krause hunched wow. forward in a stall in his ghastly suspenders and purloined cap, his elbows on his knees and his face in his hands, getting a whole new perspective on time and the various passages and personae of time. 
M.M. Pemulus and J.G. Strzok, wet-haired after their PM runs, had blarneyed their way past the library attendant at the BU School of Pharmacy, 2.8 clicks down Commonwealth on Com and Cook Street, and were seated at a table in reference. Pemulus's yachting cap pushed way back to accommodate his rising eyebrows, licking his finger to turn pages. H. Steepley's green sedan, with its neuralgiac full-front Nunhagen ad on the side, sat in an authorized guest parking spot in the ETA lot. Just a little callback here. There was a uh, truck with a Nunhagen aspirin ad painted on it, squatting outside of the Eschaton game. So she was already, before she, she was, was approved on campus, she was already watching she, Hal. Okay, great. Because she's really good at her job. Yes. Because she's Hugh Steepley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, between appointments, which takes us to EndNote 266, which is kind of a long one, but not that long, the occasional upscale parent could be seen exiting Com Ad and crossing behind the West Court's south fence to the asphalt lot and what were unmistakably parental autos, all remarkable for their textbook tire pressure and bristles of cellular antennae and the absence of any little dust smiles on their rear or side windows. Charles Tavis had spent the morning interfacing with parents of those ETA kids injured in I-Day's Eschaton free-for-all. Lateral Alice Moore, for a treat, had been listening to Tavis and parents on her headphones while typing instead of her collection of aerobic favorites. Strzok and Pemulus had cruised by before lunch and blarneyed her into putting the exchanges on her intercom speaker for a couple minutes. What? You should hear CT enclosed with parents sometime. It was only some of the parents. Todd Postlethwaite's dad was on honeymoon in the Azores. Azores? Azores? Uh, and Otis P. Lord's Maybe mother. Maybe should do that. Sure. I don't know where that is, but that's fine. Is that it's like one of those islands European off the coast, coast of uh, Spain? Spain? Yeah, okay. in the Atlantic. Chris, you're so good at geography. Uh, thank you. Well, I'm no geoguesser, but I know a few things about countries. You know, you know a few things about the Mercator projection. And Otis P. Lord's mother had some inner ear thing, and the Lords couldn't fly. But Pemulus and Strzok concurred that everyone with any kind of administration in his blood should hear ETA's headmaster with parents and a placative mission, a master charmer past all social gauge, a Houdini with the manacles of fact, the interfaces <laughs> like fluidless seductions. Pemulus said the man's missed a genuine calling in sales. Everyone practically wanting to smoke a cigarette afterward. The parents leave weeping, pumping Tavis's hands, one parent per hand, practically begging him to accept both their thanks and their apologies for daring to even possibly think, even for a moment. Then supporting each other, making their way over lateral Alice's third rail and past the beaming, extremely polite lads by her desk and out through the pressurized glass lobby doors and down off the white-pillared neo-Georgian porch and past courts and bleachers and into their well-maintained autos and out the portcullis and very slowly down the hill's brick drive before they can even recall they'd forgotten to pop in on their injured kid, sign his cast, feel his forehead, say hey. <laughs> I like the 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 very complex characterization of Charles Tavis that we've been getting. That he is like this incredible anxiety ridden dork nerd. He's kind of like the anxiety has, Joker. Yeah, who also is like this incredibly uh, potent administrator of this uh, facility. It's like every every spoon he has is used toward the administration of this like barely held together like institution. Yeah. And every then everything else is like about him is extremely like grotesque and awkward and weird. Yes, exactly. Um, back to the text. 
Between appointments in an office whose west windows yielded no view of the match, Charles Tavis <laughs> had his head mashed up against the upholstered seat rail of his sofa, his arm under the gray and red ruffle, and sweeping back and forth for the bathroom scale he keeps under there. Avril and Condensa's whereabouts on the grounds were, throughout this interval, unknown. At just this moment, MST, Orin and Condensa was once again embracing a certain Swiss hand model before a wall-width window in a rented suite halfway up a different hotel, tall hotel from before in Phoenix, Arizona. The window light was fiery with heat. Way below, tiny cars' roofs glared so bright with reflected light their colors were obscured. Pedestrians hunched and sprinted between different areas of shade and refrigeration. The cityscape's glass and metal twinkled but seemed to sag. The whole vista looked somehow stunned. The cool air through the room's vent whispered. They'd put down their glasses of ice and come together upright and embraced. The embrace was not like a hug. There was no talking. The only sound was the vent and their breath. Orin's linen knee probed the deltoid fork of the hand model's parted legs. He let the Swiss woman grind against the muscular knee of his good leg. They got so close, no light shone between them and ground together. This is anti-horny. Yes. It's gross somehow. Uh, Their lids fluttered, his closed, their breath became somehow coated. Again, the concentrated tactile languor of the sexual mode. (laughs) That's what I always say after I have sex. Yes. (laughs) Again. Oh, could you read that phrase one more time? Again, the concentrated tactile languor of the sexual mode. Concentrated tactile languor of the sexual mode. Dear God. Uh, again, they stripped each other. Good album name. Yeah. What do you think? Like industrial. Yeah, like uh, industrial. Typo negative. Band, yeah. Again, they stripped each other to the waist, and she, in that same kind of jitterbug jape they just didn't have the breath to laugh at, she hopped up at him and forked her legs the same way over his shoulders and arched back until his arm stopped her fall, and he supported her like that, the left hand horned with old callus at the small of her satiny back, and bore her. Sometimes it's hard to believe the sun's the same sun over all different parts of the planet. The new Northeast sun was at the same moment the color of Hollandaise and gave off no heat. (laughs) Between points, both Hal and Stice switched their sticks to their right hands and clamped their left hands tight under their arms to keep from losing sensation in the chill. Stice was double faulting more than his average because he was trying to get enough on his second serve to follow it credibly to net. DeLint estimated he was charting Stice at one double fault per 1.3 games, and his A to DF ratio, which takes us to endnote 267, i.e. ace slash double fault, rather like the ratio of strikeouts to walks for a pitcher. Back to the text. Was an undistinguished .6, but he, DeLint, told Helen steeply of moment, spread way out next to <laughs> spread out, sorry, spread way out next to him on the third row from the top and using Greg's shorthand, DeLint told this Ms. Steeply that Stice was nevertheless wise to crank the second serve and eat the occasional double fault. Stice wound up to serve so stiff, his motion so sprocketed and serial, that the journalist told DeLint Stice looked to her as if he'd learned to serve by studying still photos of the motion's different stages. No no offense intended. There was none of real high-speed motion's liquid flow, until the very end, when Stice pivoted toward the net and seemed to sort of fall out into the court. 
his tennis racket whirling behind his back and snapping upward to impact the yellow ball hanging at just the height of his maximum reach. And there was a solid pock as this stice cracked it flat into Oren's brother's body, handcuffing Hal at such speeds, the ball's movement presented only as afterimage, the creamy retinal trail of something too fast to track. Hal's, Hal's awkward return had too much slice and floated, and Stice hurtled forward to volley it chest high, blocking it acute into open court for a clean winner. There was mild applause. DeLint invited Helen Steeply to note that the darkness really won that point on the serve itself. Hal and Condensa walked to the fence to retrieve the ball, impassive, wiping his nose against his sweatshirt's sleeve, add in. Hal was up 5-4 in the first and had saved three adds off Stice's fifth service game, two off double faults, but DeLint still maintained Stice was wise. Hal's got to the point in the last year here where a kid's only real chance is to totally press, attack at all times, wail the serve, haul ass to the net, assume the aggressor <laughs> role. Does Herr Stitt wear eye makeup? Helen steeply asked him. I was noticing. You stay back against this Hal kid. You try to outthink him and move him around. He'll yank you back and forth and chew you up and spit you out and step on the remains. We've spent years getting him to this point. Nobody stays back and outcontrols in Condensa anymore. Pretending to flip to a fresh page, Helen steeply dropped her pen, which fell into the bleacher's struts and supports, and clattered as only something dropped into a system of metal bleachers can clatter. <laughs> the prolonged noise made Stice take some extra bounces before he served. He bounced the ball several times, leaning forward, lined up splayed and violently sideways. He went into his odd seg segmented windup. Helen steeply produced another pen from the pocket of her fiberfill parka, Stice cracked it flat down the center, aiming for an ace on the service line's tee. It went by Hal, unplayable, and literally too close to call. There are no linesmen for internal ETA matches. <laughs> Hal looked down at the line at where the thing hit and skidded, pausing before indicating his call, the hand to his cheek indicating deliberation. He shrugged and shook his head and laid out a hand flat in the air before him to signify to Stice he was calling the serve good. This meant game Stice. The darkness was walking toward the net, kneading his neck, looking at where Hal was still standing. We can go on and play too, Stice said. Didn't see it neither. Hal was coming in closer to Stice because he was going to the net post for his towel. Not your job to see it. He looked unhappy and tried to smile. You hit it too hard to see. You deserve the point. Stice shrugged and nodded, chewing. You take the next gimme then. He sliced two balls soft so they ended their roll down near the opposite baseline where Hal could use them to serve. The darkness still made huge mandibular chewing faces on court, even though he hadn't been allowed to chew gum in play since he accidentally inhaled gum and had to be heimlicked by his opponent <laughs> in the semis of last spring's Easter Bowl. Ortho saying how the next debatable call goes immediately to how they don't take two, Delint said, darkening in half squares on the two charts. Take two? Play a let, babe. Do it over. Two serves, one point. Aubrey DeLint was a lightly pockmarked man with thick yellow hair in an anchorman's helmety style and a hypertensive flush, and eyes oval and close-set and lightless that seemed like a second set of nostrils in his face. Do a whole lot of sports at moment, do you? So they're being sporting, Steeply said. Generous, fair. We inculcate that as a priority here, DeLint said, gesturing vaguely at the space around them, head bent to his charts. They seem like friends. 
The angle here for moment might be the good friends off the court and remorseless, pitiless foes on court angle. I mean, they seem like friends even playing, Helen steeply said, watching Hal dry off his leather grip with a white towel as Stice jumped up and down in place back at his deuce corner, one hand in his armpit. Delint's laugh sounded to Steepley's keen ear like the laugh of a much older and less fit man, the mucoidal fist-at-chest laugh of a lap-blanketed bl- lap old man in a lawn chair on his gravel backyard in Scottsdale, sorry, in Scottsdale, Arizona, hearing his son say his wife claimed to no longer know who he was. Don't kid yourself, babe, Delint got out. The Vought twins on the bleacher below looked up and around and pretended to shush him, the left mouth grinning, Delint with that bad, cold-eyed shard of a smile back at them as Hal and Condenza bounced the ball three times and went into his own service motion. Several little boys were strung busily out the sides, uh, along the sides of a small utility tunnel 26 meters below the show courts. Steepley's face looked as if the journalists were trying to think of pithy images for a motion as unexceptional and fluid as Hal and Condenza's serve. As at the start of a violinist, maybe, standing up alert with his sleek head cocked and racket up in front and the hand with the ball at the racket's throat like a bow. The down-together, up-together of the downswing and toss could be a child making angels in the snow, cheeks rosy and eyes at the sky, but Hal's face was pale and thoroughly unchildlike his gaze somehow extending only half a meter in front of him. He looked nothing like the punter. The service motion's middle might be a man at a precipice, falling forward, giving in sweetly to his own weight, and the serve's terminus and impact, a hammering man, the driven nail just within range at the top of his tiptoed reach. But all these were only parts, and made the motion seem segmented, when the smaller, crew-cutted jowly boy was the one with the stuttered motion, the man of parts. Steeply had played tennis only a couple times with his wife and had felt ungainly and simian out there. The punter's discourses on the game had been lengthy, but not much use. It was unlikely that any one game figured much in the entertainment. Helen Condenza's first serve was a tactically aggressive shot, but not immediately identifiable as such. Stice wanted to serve so hard he could set himself up to put the ball away on the next shot, up in net. Hal's serve seemed to set in motion a much more involved mechanism, one that took several exchanges to reveal itself as aggressive. His first serve hadn't Stice's pace, but it had depth, plus a topspin Hal achieved with an arch back and faint brushing action over the back of the ball that made the serve curve visibly in the air, egg-shaped with spin, to land deep in the box and hop up high so that Stice couldn't do more than send back a deep backhand chip from shoulder height and then couldn't come in behind a return that'd been robbed of all pace. Stice moved to the baseline center as the chip floated back to Hal. Hal's pivot moved him right so he could take it on the forehand, which takes us to end note 268, it was like Steeply had never seen so many left-handed people. Both Hal and Condenza and the boy in black were left-handed. One of the two little girls four courts down was left-handed. DeLint was marking the chart with his left hand. Both AFR turncoat Remy Morath and Quebecer triple operative Luria P were southpaws, though Steeply realized that this could hardly be called significant. Hmm. It's funny watching hearing you describe this game while watching You're tennis watching tennis highlights? As we're... Um, as we are wont to do for, during this, because uh, the the descriptions that you are providing through this book are much more involved than what I am watching in uh, professional tennis highlights, which mostly to me look like serve, other guy returns, hits the net, it's over. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I 
I'm sure this exists. Maybe we can find it. Uh, just an all slow motion tennis game. So you really see the like yeah, the mechanics of it. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where like if, when you're a layman watching a sport, no matter how, you know, no matter how good the uh, the performance is, if you don't really know what's going on, it all looks kind of uh, whatever to you. And then the more you know about yeah. what's going on, the more exciting. Totally. It is. Back to the text. This is why, you know. When you go to one baseball game a year, it's basically just guys standing around. Just hit, hitting. Uh, mostly numbers that, you know, it's like the Matrix. You pull, you pull the, uh, you, if you know the baseball, like, uh, statistics things, yeah. then you just look at it and you see the Matrix. Well, yeah. Uh, baseball is essentially the most elaborate RNG mechanism we have, random number generator mm. uh, that, we, that uh, we have in society. And that's what people like about it, the random numbers that it generates. Yeah. And they can look at all the numbers and observe them over time and, and write be them like, in little charts. The, sorry, my favorite thing about it, and I'm just I'm speaking as a full on sports idiot. Uh, I I don't uh, understand or appreciate. I'm the opposite of an aficionado. Uh, but when like someone does something in a baseball game and you're watching on TV and there's like a Chiron that pops up that's like this is the first time that he's hit a double uh, in a blah blah game on the East Coast uh, division since uh, 1999 uh, uh, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, how did you know that? What what the yeah, fuck? Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's the first time the player uh, has gotten uh, over uh, uh, 7.7 RBIs in a Northeastern Conference game uh, on an odd-numbered day uh, in the fall. Yes. Yeah, yes. Know, like, and I'm like, there, is there a computer program that like pulls up like fun facts, basically, yes. of just being like, beep, boop, beep, boop. Uh, th- this guy uh, is a left-handed uh, pitcher. And he's in, uh, you know, the, the central time zone, and he hasn't struck out more than four people in the first uh, three innings since, uh, yeah. you know, twenty eighteen or whatever. Exactly. It's really but stressful. That's what people love about baseball: numbers. Love those Math. numbers. Those boys and those those big boys. Those men. The crack of the bat. The crack of the bat. The popcorn and peanuts. The crack of the bat and the rack of the abacus as you're <laughs> counting up all the numbers involved in baseball. America's I will break, pastime. Do you think I could get an abacus through security at my next Mets game, or yes. do you think? Yeah. The, the crack of the bat. The rack of the abacus. The crack of the, the crack of the the cracker of the jack. The cracker of the jack, and then the crack of security uh, uh, down on my head when I insist on loudly doing abacus work uh, yes. and disturbing every everyone else's uh, viewer experience. Uh, the cracker of the jack sounds like a Marath sta- saying. The, you, what is this? The cracker of the jack. I am, fami- I am familiar with the, the the balls of bases and the crackers of the jack. <laughs> oh Lord! All right, another looper dripping with top. Right back, <laughs> right back in the same corner he'd served to, so that Stice had to stop and sprint back the same way he'd come. Stice drove his backhand hard down the line to Hal's forehand, a blazing thing that made the audience inhale. But as the Samizdat's director's other son, <laughs> sorry, the Samizdat's director's other son glided a few strides left. Steeply could see that he now had a whole open court to hit cross court into. Stice having hit so hard, he'd backpedaled a bit off the shot and was now scrambling to get back out of the deuce corner. And Hal hit the flat, <laughs> sorry, textbook drive, cross court into green lined space. Hard, but <laughs> sorry. Do I need to pause again? Do we need to install a cough button in our setup? I mean, you're doing a lot. You're doing a lot of John over there. <coughs> I don't know how Trolch <laughs> does it. All right, let me see. Actually, will you pause? I'm so sorry. <laughs> yes, okay, of course. 
And we're back. My deepest apologies. I've got some, um, I would call this some uh, reticent Coachella lung. Yes. Some uh, desert dust that I'm still dealing yes, with. We've both been congested for like three straight weeks. <laughs> yeah, it's normal. We won't, we won't go to the doctor. It's cool. Um, all right. Where am I? Hal hit the flat textbook drive cross court into green lined space, hard but not flamboyantly so, and the diagonal of the ball kept it traveling out wide after it hit Stice's ad sideline carrying it away from the boy in black's outstretched racket. And for a second, it looked as if Stice at a dead run might get his strings on the ball, but the ball stayed tantalizingly just out of reach, still traveling at a severe cross-court diagonal, and it passed Stice's racket half a meter past its rim, and Stice's momentum carried him almost halfway into the next court. Stice slowed to a jog to go retrieve the ball. Hal stood slightly hip-shot on the ad side, waiting for Stice to get back and let him serve again. Delint, whose peripheral vision's acuity and disguise was an ETA legend, observed the big journalist chew her nib for a second and then put down nothing more than the Greg ideogram for pretty, uh, shaking her fuchsia cap. <laughs> Wasn't that pretty, he said blandly, steeply rooted for a hanky. Not exactly. Hell's in essence, so that's funny. He, uh, he, uh, Delint knows Greg shorthand. Is yeah, that looking a cu- up what that is? It's a t- all I know is it's a type of shorthand for like secretaries and uh, um, amanuenses and other uh, note takers, uh, journalists, etc. Okay, interesting. It was a skill you would have learned probably before typing. Yes. Uh, uh, and I'm uh, I, I would like to learn it. That would be re- extremely funny. Hal's in essence a torturer if you want his essence as a player instead of a straight out killer like Stice or the Canadian Wayne, DeLint said. This is why you don't stay back or play safe against Hal. This way of the ball seeming just in reach to keep you trying, running. He yanks you around, always two or three shots ahead. He won that point on the deep forehand after the serve. The second he had Stice wrong-footed, you could see the angle open up, uh... Though the serve set the whole thing up in advance and without the risk of much pace on it. The kid doesn't need pace, we've helped him find. When might I get a chance to talk to him? <laughs> Should I do like a fake girl voice for Helen Steeply? Uh, I think it, it's fine. Incondenza took a lot of bringing along. He didn't used to quite have the complete game to be able to do this. Slice the cord up into sections and chinks. Then all of a sudden you see light through one of the chinks and you see he's been setting up the angle since the start of the point. It makes you think of chess. The journalist blew her red nose. Chess on the run. Nice term. Hal went into his service motion to the ad court. Do the students play chess here? A mirthless chuckle. No time. (laughs) Do you play chess? Stice hit a backhand winner off Hal's second serve. Mild applause. I don't have time to play anything, Dylan said, filling in a square. You could tell by the sound that the other boy's racket was strung tighter than Hal's. When do I get to sit down with Hal directly? I don't know. I don't think you do. The journalist's rapid head movement reconfigured the flesh of her neck. Pardon me? It's not my decision. My guess is you don't. Dr. Tavis didn't already tell you? I really couldn't tell what he was telling me. (laughs) We've never had a kid here interviewed. The founder let you guys on the grounds versus Tavis. This is an exception you're even getting in. I'm here for background only, for your alumnus, the punter. DeLint was making his lips look like he was whistling, even though no whistling sound was emerging. We've never let somebody do any kind of interview on a kid while he's still in training and inculcation. (laughs) 
Does the student have some sort of say in who he talks to and why? What if the boy wants to chat with me about his brother's transition from tennis to football? DeLint kept his concentration on the match and, his, and the chart in a way that was supposed to let you know you had very little of his attention. Talk to Tavis about it. I was in there for over two hours. <laughs> you pick up how to do questions with him after a while. Tavis, you have to back into a yes-no corner where you can finally say, I need a yes or a no. It takes about 20 minutes if you're sharp. This is your whole business, getting answers out of people. The answer is not for me to officially say, but I'm guessing a no. The Boston press guys come around after a big event. They get match results and physical stats and hometowns and nothing more. Moment is a national magazine for and about exceptional people, not some sports writer with a cigar and a deadline. <laughs> it's a command decision, babe. I'm not in command. I know they teach us to teach that this place is about seeing instead of being seen. I'm only here for the human interest perspective of a talented boy on his talented brother's bold transition to a major sport where he's shown himself to be even more talented. One exceptional brother on another. Hal is not the profile's focus. Get Tavis in the right corner and he'll tell you about seeing and being seen. These kids, the best of them are here to learn to see. Stitt's thing is self-transcendence through pain. These, <laughs> these kids, gesturing at Stice, running madly up for a drop volley that stopped rolling well inside the service line, mild applause, they're here to get lost in something bigger than them, to have it stay the way it was when they started. The game is something bigger at first. Then they show talent, start winning, become big fish in their ponds out there in their hometowns, Stop being able to get lost inside the game and see. Fucks with the junior's head, talent. They pay top dollar to come here and go back to being little fish and to get savaged and feel small and see and develop. To forget themselves as objects of attention for a few years and see what they can do when the eyes are off them. They didn't come here to get re read about as some soft news item or background, babe. <laughs> DeLint read Steeply's expression as some kind of tick. The tiniest tuft babe. of... What? Oh yeah, babe. <laughs> Babe, the tiniest tuft of nostril hair protruded from one of her nostrils, which DeLint felt found repellent. She said, were you ever written about as a player? DeLint smiled coolly at his charge. Never had the sort of ranking or promise this issue'd even come up for me. But some of these do. Hal's brother did. DeLint felt along his lips outline with his pencil, sniffed. Orn was okay. Orn was essentially a one-trick pony as a player. And between you and me and the fence, he was kind of a head case. His game left here on the downswing. Now his little brother's got a future in tennis if he wants. And ortho. Wayne for sure. A couple of the girls, Kent, Karen, and Sharon here, indicating the Vought apparition below them. <laughs> uh, the really gifted ones, the ones that make it out of here still on the upswing if they get to the show. Meaning professional, you mean. In the show, they'll all get all they want of being made into statues to be looked at and poked at and discussed, and then some. For now, they're here to get to be the ones who look and see and forget getting looked at for now. But even you call it the show. They'll be entertainers. You bet their ass there will be. Or, sorry, you bet your ass they will be. So audiences will be the whole point. Why not also prepare them for the stresses of entertaining as an audience? Get them used to being seen. The two boys were at the near net post, Stice blowing his nose into a towel. <laughs> DeLint made kind of a show of putting his clipboard down. Assume wrongly for a second that I can speak for the Enfield Academy. I say you do not get it. The point here for the best kids is to inculcate their sense that it's never about being seen. It's never. If they can get that inculcated, the show won't fuck them up, Shtit thinks. 
If they can forget everything but the game, when all of you out there outside the fence see only them and want only them and the game's incidental to you, for you it's about entertainment and personality. It's about the statue. But if they can get inculcated right, they'll never be slaves to the statue. They'll never blow their brains out after winning an event when they win or dive out a third-story window when they start uh, to stop getting poked at or profiled when their blossom starts to fade. Whether or not you mean to, babe, you chew them up. It's what you do. We choose statues, whether you mean to or no. You, moment, world tennis, self, interlace, the audience, the crowds in Italy fucking literally. It's the nature of the game. It's the machine they're all dying to throw themselves into. They don't know the machine, but we do. Gerhardt's teaching them to see the ball out of a place inside that can't be chewed. It takes time and total focus. The man's a fucking genius. Profile shtit if you want to profile somebody. And I'm not going to be allowed even to ask the students what it looks like, this inside chew-proof place. It's a secret place. <laughs> Hal Miss hit a second serve, and it flew off his frame and way down to where the girls were sending each other squeaks and lobs. And Stice had now broken him to go up 6-5. And the murmurs in the bleachers were like a courtroom at an unpleasant revelation. DeLint rounded his lips and made a kind of bovine sound in Orthostice's direction. Hal chipped his balls out along the baseline and made some small adjustments in his cross-hatched strings as he walked around for the side change. A couple of the nastier kids applauded Hal's mishit a little. Get sardonic with me all you want. I already said it's not my command decision. I wouldn't get sardonic with Tavis, though. But if it were your command? Lady, if it was me, you'd be pressing your nose between the bars of the gate down there is as far as you'd get in. You're coming into a little slice of space and or time that's been carved out to protect talented kids from exactly the kind of activities you guys come in here to do. Why Orin, anyway? The, guy, the kid appears four times a game, never gets hit, doesn't even wear pads. A one-trick pony. Why not, why not John Wayne? A more dramatic story. Geopolitics. Privation. Exile. Drama. A better player than Hal, even. A more complete game. Aimed like a fucking missile at the show. Maybe the top five if he doesn't fuck up or burn down. Wayne's your ideal food group, which is why we'll keep you off him as long as he's here. The so soft profile looked around at the scalps and knees in the stands, the bags of gear, and a couple incongruous cans of furniture polish. Carved out of what, though, this place? That's it. Great. Uh, where are we? 45. We shouldn't even yeah. we should go on. Yeah. That was a, a bit of a long one. Uh, you know, I Over 10 pages. Over ten pages, we're we're really yeah. chewing off. Um, we're big, trying to catch up a little bit. I big think parts of this today, uh, or in the last few ones, uh, we'll just finish up next week. <laughs> Are you joking? Yeah, what? It's only like what a hundred and how long would this take me? This uh, it'd be three hundred. It's three hundred pages left to go. Three hundred pages. Uh, at usually takes us about forty minutes for ten pages, so that's thirty times forty minutes. Uh, three times uh, 40 minutes is three hours. So 30 hours, something like that. Uh, well, a little Adderall and a uh, and, uh, um, couple cups of uh, cold brew and I'll be good to go. Great. Um, well, that would be without any discussion either. Someone, someone at this tennis match that we're watching is wearing like a highly shielded bucket hat with like a full teddy bear sewn on the side. Yeah, I think these people are British. <laughs> It's, uh, but what what I was thinking actually, like watching this, this was actually you know the one time that this comes in because you know we're watching uh, 
you know, professional tennis, watching a broadcast of professional tennis while we're reading this segment about playing tennis, aiming at professional tennis. And one of the things that was coming up for me was observing how much of this broadcast is watching the fans watch the sport. Because obviously there's a lot of moments in this where you need to like, the players need to reset and all the, the ball children need to run around with, you know, their military-like precision to, yes. to get the balls where they need to be. Of course. Like, uh, but, you know, always cut back to the fans watching. Ah, uh, there's of, Anna Wintour. Uh, yes. The editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine, fam- famed tennis freak. Uh, always watching with a kind of, uh, you know, indifference. Like, you, the expression of people at tennis games is never like enraptured entertainment and i guess like that would be the same if you put picked any uh individual person out of like a baseball game stand or a tennis or a uh, basketball stand but i don't know those people the baseball tennis football seem more like entranced by it well but but the thing about tennis is you truly have to when the game is happening you can't look away yeah you know what i mean i mean i guess that's true for all sports but like it's got that i think the reason that tennis is part of the metaphor of like the entertainment is that for that moment of the game you are truly like your eyes you are hypnotized right yeah uh versus like baseball it's like ah you hit it and they're like football there's like eight million things going on like yeah. one guy's tackling one guy and then one guy is throwing the ball. ball and the other three other people are running around. You don't really know where they're going. Yeah, they're just running around in circles, cl- clutching their heads. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know. It is it is a, a a sport and especially a broadcast sport that is very, very keenly keyed into the presence and gaze of the audience. Yeah. And but there's also, you know, cheering is curtailed to a certain extent yeah yeah like yeah. you can yell the entire game at a basketball game exactly but uh, people don't really yell they kind of sit in polite silence here just watching yeah it's a the silent eyes of anna wintour <laughs> the silent eyes of anna wintour yeah it's a definitely a weird it's a weird fucking sport <laughs> and it's also like the crowd for it is weird because there's clearly a a rump of tennis freaks who still consider tennis like observation to be like a formal event you right, know, you gotta like, wear like a suit or something. Yeah, and then there's a bunch of because this is America, of course, a bunch of just fucking slobs. Yeah, who are wearing like a big dog's t-shirt and a bucket hat. <laughs> but also, like you know, there's not people running up and down the audience uh, saying uh, "hot dogs," get your hot dogs. Like it's a very hushed, reverent sport yes. as opposed to a rowdy party sport. Yes. Um, there are these people in these Swiss t-shirts. Do we assume Benetier is Swiss? Federer Swiss, hello. Oh, Federer Swiss. Bonjour. I did not realize that. I assumed Spanish. Le meilleur uh, joueur de tennis uh, suisse dans le monde, I think. I don't know if there's a better Swiss tennis player. Uh, I did not realize Federer is Swiss. Oui. Then what do we think about Benetier? French, probably? Beneteau sounds French to me. But they don't have the little flags next to their uh, names, too. They should. We need to know where these people come from. And speaking of Federer, I'm sure I brought this fucking up on this podcast before. And if you're still here, I don't know. It's maybe been two years. But uh, uh, iconic, iconic uh, essay about Federer uh, written by David Foster Wallace. One of the best pieces of sports writing I've ever read in my entire oh, yeah. life. Uh, just about talk, talk about soft profiles, mm-hmm. uh, hard, hard profile medium profile uh just about like trying to explain why Federer's sports game is so beautiful yeah uh and you know 
because what is the job of an essay if not to convince people? I'm like, I have no idea what the fuck his fucking game looks like. I don't give a shit. I mean, that's what we're kind of gar- grasping with here, where I'm watching this and I'm like, yeah, it all looks about the same to me. Well, you gotta re- <laughs> you gotta read the article. I feel like I just read the essay about why <laughs> about why tennis is so beautiful. All right, so what do you take away from from that segment? What did I take away from that segment? Well, you know, obviously this uh up up uh what, what am I? What's the word I'm thinking of? Uh uprooting game that Stice sh- shouldn't be winning, which was also called by Shtit like quite randomly, which I guess, I don't know if Shtit was trying to come up with an excuse to show the moment profiler, Hal's yes, game. Something like that. But like, I think that's another element that's maybe worth talking about or remarking on in tennis is that like, I don't know. I'm a I'm a theater kid. You rehearse for three months and then you put on the show three times. Yeah, exactly. This you could get called in the morning to play a game in the afternoon that ends up being like could change your entire mindset about your like the sport. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Could could mind freak you forever, and you just have to do it like that day. Same with stand up comedy. We talked about that before. That like you, you just you you just do like four sets a night. Just okay, time to be funny. Yes. The like athlete thing versus the artist thing of like just needing to like get it done yeah. is really fascinating to me because I am certainly not that way. I need time to prepare. Yes. I need to ma- I need to make a presentation. I need to practice. Well, I do appreciate that element of stand up that is sports sports like. Yeah. Uh, I would I say improv the- fits I would say improv comedy fits in that too of like you just got to go well, on there's and There's a lot of other bullshit that goes on <laughs> in improv. Uh, but yeah, I mean and I think that the uh the the best stand-ups or the, at least the most well-adjusted is as much as you can be the oxymoronic statement a well-adjusted stand-up are the ones who are very much invested in it as a, a you know a uh a job a work you got to put in the hours a, cra- a craft a, a craft. craft yeah rather than uh you know the people who are obsessed with being uh you know brave truth tellers and you know uh, w- w- warriors of like yeah. a subculture or, or just clout clout vultures yes Thirsty, su- picking up the clout, picking at clout carcasses. Clout carcasses, and that's a that would that yes. be smirches vultures, one of my favorite birds. Yes, the the we love the friendly, the friendly and kind vulture. Um, and so, uh, okay, the other um, the the other thing to maybe pick out is like we've got Helen Steeply doing her her own mind freaking uh, mm-hmm. of like subtle interrogation, like p- trying to triangulate people to get details about the Incondenza family that she slash he might not have already gotten of like, it seems like she's just trying at every angle to like, okay, well, if he's not going to let me in, then maybe if by bugging him about letting me in, I can find out something that I need to know about who might have more information about this entertainment. Yes. I do like that bit at the end where they're talking about the desire to, to drill out any sense of being seen in the kid in the yeah. kids because we you know we have talked about the and we talk about this a lot on and introducing uh how destructive being seen can be for a young a young person. person who is not prepared who has not made any mental preparation for for that and this um, is written with real a uh, r- real reference to past because tennis is something that you can be extremely good at you can be a professional tennis player at 15 years yes. old but then if you get mind freaked in that sense, then you burn out. Oh, God, what's the name of the girl? Steffi Graf was good. There was a, a, a child wonder, a girl in the 80s. And mm-hmm. I'm working on her name. Um, but she like ate shit completely. Because the fame was too. Because the fame was too intense, which is it's funny. It almost sounds quaint in a way that the idea of tennis fame. But 
And I do feel like maybe tennis has fallen well, a little like bit in visual esteem. Uh, was a time of rising fame for tennis. There were like tennis celebs, like Andre John Agassi. John, John McEnroe. McEnroe was on guest starred on Thirty. Like uh, you know, two decades later, guest starred on Thirty Rock like four times. Like he's a genuine like celeb that you would want to have he show up. To Andre that. Agassi did you know a Canon camera commercial like endorsements yeah. like you could make you big could money. You could become a tennis celeb. Uh, did you re- I mean I was going to ask because you love that Andre Agassi book is a little a lot of that is him grappling with not the tennis part of the tennis but the fame part of the tennis. Yeah and it almost it's it seems like he, he had such an interesting perspective on it that it seemed like he was desperately trying to Ooh, Ooh, oh, oh no! Oh. Sorry. Oh God! Oh, we the tennis highlight. Someone just oh. bopped their knee. Oh, that oh, did that not look good. Sweet oh, torn meniscus. Sh- <laughs> Yikes! I really don't like watching people get hurt. It looks uh, like unless it's jackass. Out. Unless it's consent. <laughs> unless it's consensual. Unless it's hurt. consensual uh, injuries. Um, uh, th- that uh, Andre Agassi seemed to be doing the same thing that uh, David Foster Wallace is describing is like just seeking out the game, like mm-hmm. trying to like isolate everything other than like him and the other opponent like he, he's you get so good at tennis you that want like pure uncut game uncut game uh but yeah the the fame aspect and i do wonder if some of this is predictive of david foster wallace almost anticipating the idea of literary fame yeah is that you could be pounding out a, a novel for like years and years and the the right the craft is what you do and then once you release it into the world and you have eyes on it and that is a tension that I'm aware of, uh, you know, as a as someone who has written things before. Writing something is totally different than like putting it out there and having people. Oh, it's so vulnerable. Once people actually get to read your writing. Yes. Yikes. Oh, to be the don't perceive me, says says uh, David Foster Wallace. I'm trying not to be perceived. Uh, happened with this cord. Oh, no. Uh yes, Am I, I agree. Crackling? I mean, like I think that's been one of our uh, fascinations between all of these, all of our pod projects, is how uh, the the separation of talent, art, and craft from the warping reality of celebrity, and how you know this is something that's been coming up. Um, that's been kind of like a, a running joke uh, over on. Uh, the Blank Check podcast for a while and something that's been coming up among with the Chapos as well is the ongoing joke between older British actors and uh, American like hotshot method actors yeah. where it's like uh, you know, oh, apparently yes, there yes. are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of um, quips in Brian Cox's forthcoming joke of him interacting with like people like Jeremy Strong Who's less of a celebrity, more of like a serious method actor, where where they they have to like become the character and like, or like Jared Leto, uh, like being like I must warp my mind into becoming the Joker, and like every old British actor, uh, who are e- you know equally if not better as good because they treat it as a job that you do as a craft. Yes. they're like uh, the old, old perfect Lawrence Olivier quote talking to uh, talking about this to um, oh who's the guy from Midnight Cowboy and The Graduate. Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman, who's doing like, you know, refusing to sleep on the set of The Marathon Man because he plays an insomniac. And <laughs> yeah. Olivier just goes, have you tried acting? Have you boy? tried acting, my boy? Yes. Wait, is, look, he was a British actor. Yeah, yeah. British. Have you tried acting, my boy? But also, along those lines, the difference between being an actor and being a celebrity. 
and the yeah. idea of like when you're dealing with certain actors who are celebrities, you might treat them differently on like a movie set or as a play than a actor who is there to perform a job. Yes. You know? Yeah. And dealing with a celebrity is a different set of like maybe directorial skills or maybe writing skills or whatever than dealing with an actor yeah. who should come up, look at the part and say, all right, what do I do to act this yeah. role? All right, I can act this. Because I am an actor. Because I'm an actor. That's Whereas my job. a celeb, somebody who is more celeb focused as like the top tier American actors seem to be, might be like, all right, how is this part about me? Yes. Now, how do I make this part me? Me. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Rather than how do I make me me this, this part. part? Yes. Uh, one of my favorite, one of the rare, in, increasingly rare, I think probably because of the way like the internet has developed and media has developed, one of my increasingly rare favorite type of people is people who genuinely seem to like being famous. Yes. There's like three of them now, but one of yes. them is Lady Gaga. Yes. Uh, Lady Gaga seems to basically draw actual genuine energy from being famous. Yes, exactly. Uh, as opposed to someone who like, I Which mean. why she gets to find, keeps finding new and exciting ways to be famous. Yeah, she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll have a Vegas like cabaret show. Like I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do it all uh versus good lord uh i'm i'm genuinely praying for her but billy eilish is going to have i think some kind of reckoning in the next couple of years where she realizes how goddamn miserable being famous is for her and might i don't know move to iceland and bjork's house on the water i think being famous would be fun i think i'd do a good job with it oh you think you think you can handle it yeah i don't know it's, it seems like it sucks i'd be cool uh, i would prefer to be notorious <laughs> um or maybe just unknown how about recognized you you know what actually my my ideal peak level of fame would be? You ready for this? What? You know how sometimes in uh, writing they refer to someone who is quasi-famous as like the actor blank or the sculptor blank? Someone who is not a household name and so you do you do need to preface it with their, their thing. thing yeah. I would like to be known as, you know, the, the, po the podcaster uh, Molly O'Brien or the director or whatever else yes. I end up doing in my life. Uh, that would be good. How about celebrated? <laughs> Would you like to be celebrated as in celebrated author? Yeah. Molly yeah. Controversial. Controversial. Um, uh, what, are, what are some other uh, 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 unpredictable? There's something unpredictable. Uh, but in the end, it's fine. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm trying to think of what are the other good descriptors of, uh, of uh, being famous. Um, Erratic. Recognized. They're being recognized more and more. Uh, un uh, under underrated, unpredictable, unpredictable. No, I, I'm I'm done with being uh, under underrated for life. Yeah, you know you know who we talked about was underrated for life. Uh, Zoe Saldana. Yes, she's been in some of the biggest movies of all time, and I feel like Always, no one treats her yeah, like she's, she's an un like A-lister. A yeah, very strange. Um, um, recognized. Did, who said? Who says recognized? I don't know. Just, you're Just want to, how about established? established. Okay. Yeah. Established per perennial favorite. Perennial favorite. Uh, established podcaster. Cons persuade. Consistent. Uh, consistent. Yeah. Uh, no. I don't, I don't think anybody gets consistent. <laughs> uh, reliable. Reliable. Uh, blue chip. Blue chip. Uh, blue chip podcaster. How, how, Chris this Wade. Is, this is one that they say for directors, and I'll say for the myself. Uh, this is Steady Hand Podcaster, Chris Wade, <laughs> signing off. And uh, I guess we all go under underrated podcaster, uh, Molly O'Brien, also right. signing off. Uh, talk to you next week. Uh, go watch some tennis. Bye-bye.